I should like to call your attention once more to the great sentence written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, which is to be found in the third chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians, from verse 2 to verse 7. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to your word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when, he, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ Jesus by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Well, there is a great sentence, and we began to consider it last Sunday morning. You remember that the apostle here is concerned to enable these Ephesians to have an understanding of the greatness of his calling, in order that having understood that, they no longer will be faint in their hearts and in their minds as they think of him in prison. That was his object. It's purely a pastoral object primarily. He knew that they were worrying about him, and he knows that the only way to get them out of that is so to enable them to look at the glory of his ministry, the privilege of it all, and to see it so clearly that instead of being worried about him, they'd thank God for his wonderful grace. Now, we are interested in all this, not simply because it's a part of uh, the exposition of this uh, great epistle, but because it indeed has a very important practical relevance for us. We are living in a world in which there are many Christian people this morning suffering acutely because they're Christians. And... Uh, the faith of some of them may be shaken. Our faith may be shaken because of what they're having to endure. And God knows a day may come when we as Christians may have to endure in this land. Well, now, this is the way to be prepared for that kind of thing. But even if that were not necessary, and for that reason, what can be more important than that we should contemplate the greatness of this plan of salvation? It is only as we grasp it that we shall praise God as we ought and worship him as we were meant to do. So we come back to it. Now the apostle, I say, is just trying to give them a glimpse of this extraordinary way in which God has contrived to bring the gospel to them. Here they are as Christians who had been so different. How have they ever come to be Christian? Well, it's because of what God has done, and what he has done in particular to this particular man, his servant, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle goes back over it again. He seems to say, in effect, I had the great privilege of preaching the gospel to you in Ephesus. You'd never heard of it until I came amongst you. But do you realize what a wonderful thing it is that I of everybody should ever have preached that gospel unto you? If, do you remember what I once was? What is it that ever made me a preacher? And back he goes over the great account. He says, as we saw last Sunday morning, that he's an apostle. 
He's an apostle of equal rank and standing with all those others, though he was never with the Lord in the days of his flesh as they were, though he hadn't received his commission from the Lord while he was yet on earth as the other apostles had, but had that special revelation on the road to Damascus, saw the Lord of glory actually risen from the dead and received his commission directly from him there face to face. He's an apostle of equal rank with all those others. And he glories in it. And you remember how he tells them something of what that means. It means that uh, the, uh, the mystery had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way as it had been to the other apostles and to the prophets. And uh, having looked at all that, we drew certain important lessons for ourselves, lessons which are of vital concern to every Christian, to every member of the Christian church at this present hour. Because it may well be that you, every one of you, will have to come to a decision one day as to whether you're going to be members of a great uh, church, great world organization, uh, which believes in apostolic succession and that uh, the Pope of Rome is the vicar of Christ in a unique sense. These are some of the problems that will have to confront us all. And here these things are dealt with by the apostle. But now let us press on. Here he is, I say, he's an apostle, and that means that uh, this mystery has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't have known it otherwise. No one can know it otherwise. But it had been given to him in this special way, this dispensation of the grace of God, this stewardship, this thing that had been committed to his charge and to his care. He's got to look after it. He's got to protect it against thieves and robbers and those who would detract from it. All that is a part of his ministry. Well, now then, the question that arises is this. What is this mystery that has been revealed to him? And he gives us the answer himself. Now, you notice that in this long sentence, he uses the word mystery twice. It's in verse 3 and in verse 4. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Then, in the authorized version, bracket. Now, unfortunately, the revised version and the revised standard and others don't use these brackets. And it's a great pity because it confuses the issue. The authorized, very rightly, I say, now starts with a parenthesis in brackets. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby, that is to say, when you look back at that, when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. End of the brackets. Uh, which in other ages was not no made known unto the sons of men. Now, the brackets, I say, are important for this reason that the statement within the brackets is very definitely a parenthesis. So that really you can read it like this, if you like, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, then go on to verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. That's the statement. But then he's put in this subsidiary statement. As I wrote afore in a few words, there he's referring to what he's already said in chapters 1 and 2. Not referring to another epistle, 
but to what he's already said, what I said above, we would say now. He said it in chapters 1 and 2, uh, as I wrote afore in few words, uh, whereby, uh, when you read, go back and read it again, he says. And you notice how we should read an epistle? Shouldn't be in too much of a hurry to get to the end. Go back and read what he's already said, and he's telling them to do that. He said, have you got it clearly? Well, go back and read it again. Read chapters 1 and 2 once more at this point. And if you do that, you'll understand when you read my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now then, it's quite clear, isn't it, that he is using the word mystery about two different things. You remember our definition last Sunday morning of the word mystery. It means something that the human mind cannot attain unto by its own unaided effort. It's something that must be revealed by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean something which is misty or uncertain and about which you can never be clear in your minds. Not that at all. It means something that uh, without this enlightenment and revelation we really can never grasp. Right. Well now then, he's using it, I say, in two senses. And we can describe the senses like this. The mystery that he talks about in the parenthesis, especially in verse 4, is the mystery of Christ. Let's call that the general mystery. But then the thing he is really concerned to elaborate is another mystery. The mystery that he elaborates in verses 5 and 6. This mystery which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now unto his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That is the particular mystery. Now that bit of exposition of course was essential because if we are not clear about this we shall probably be muddled and confused about his entire statement. Now again it is interesting to notice not only the working of the mind of this great apostle, but to watch his spirit. You see, there are certain things the apostle evidently cannot refrain from doing. Though it plays havoc with his style, as we indicated a fortnight ago, he, 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 he seems to be quite incapable of controlling himself. Now, though he is setting out to talk about the particular mystery here, he can't pass by without saying just a word about the general mystery. And therefore, we start now with the general mystery. This uh, mystery which he refers to in verse 4, and which he describes as the mystery of Christ. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, uh, he's uh, referring, I say, to what he's already been expounding to these Ephesians. Uh, you need be in no doubt, in no uncertainty, he seems to say, as to my knowledge of this message that has been committed unto me. Later on, he's going to call himself a minister who's been appointed to preach it. He says, I think I've said enough. I've written enough for you to know already that... Uh, Oh, he gave me an insight into it. I have a knowledge in this mystery of Christ. Now, what is this? What does he mean by the mystery of Christ? Well, of course, this is just another way of referring to the whole message of the gospel. Or if you prefer it, it's just a way of referring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
for he in reality is the gospel. It is all in him. The apostle, you see, is talking about the message committed unto him, the message that he'd preached to these people. What is the message? It's Christ. The mystery of Christ. Now, if you can't read the uh, writings of this uh, great apostle without seeing that uh, this is the thing he's always talking about. Go through the epistles of Paul and just put down on paper every time he refers to him as Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus my Lord and so on. It's perfectly astounding and amazing. Someone once put it, he's a Christ-intoxicated man. It's not surprising that he says, to me to live is Christ. Beginning, end, center, soul, everything. Well, why? Well, because his whole message was this, that everything that God has for man is in Christ and nowhere else. He puts it, for instance, in writing to the Colossians, in Colossians 2, 3, in these words, in whom, he says, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all there in Christ. And it's nowhere else. So, you see, he can't pass on to his particular mystery without just saying a word once more about this great general mystery. Now, listen to him again saying the same thing in writing his first epistle to Timothy. And without controversy, he says. And you remember, don't you, that this is a pastoral epistle, a very practical epistle. He is really writing to Timothy to tell him all about ordaining presbyters and deacons and things like that. It's one of the most practical passages in all his writings. But you see, again, he can't help himself. He says, I want you to know how to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Great is the mystery of godliness. He's bound to say it. He can't help saying it. Why? Well, of course, this is the most thrilling and the most exciting, the most tremendous thing that has ever come into the world, will ever come. There's nothing beyond it. And therefore, the apostle of necessity must pause and look at it and say something about it. Well, what is it? Well, I say it's just this. It's this amazing way in which God has sent salvation to men. It's the way that he's done it. It's the plan. This astounding thing. All this that has happened in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery. And what a mystery. Who would ever have seen it? Who would ever have known it? Were it not for the illumination, for the revelation that the Holy Ghost alone can give? Let me put it to you like this. 
A babe is born in Bethlehem and put in a manger. Well, that's all right. That happens very frequently. A babe. Is there anything marvelous about that? That's the greatest mystery of all. For that child, that babe, is the eternal Son of God. The mystery. Two natures in one person. He's God. He's man. He's truly God without any limitation. He is truly man without any limitation. And those two natures are in him, and yet he's not two persons. He's only one person. I don't understand that, says someone. Of course you don't. You're not meant to. If you think your mind is big enough to grasp and to span a thing like that, you'd better think again. This is the mystery of godliness. And this man who probably had a deeper insight into it than anybody who's ever lived, he himself simply stands back and says, Great is the mystery of godliness. It's been revealed. He knows that there are the two natures in the one person. He knows now who that is, not by any process of his own, but by the revelation, as he tells us, through the Holy Spirit. What the Son himself said to him when he said in reply to Saul's question, Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. There it is. The mystery of Christ. This is God's way of salvation. That almighty and eternal and everlasting God to whom the nations are but as the small dust of the balance and vanity and less than that and lighter than vanity, the God who made everything out of nothing, who simply said, let there be light and there was light. Well, you would have thought that when he desired to save men and to save the world, again he would utter some great word. And the whole universe would shake and quake. And there'd be some dramatic exhibition of power. And so God would save, he'd destroy evil and save men. But he didn't do it like that. How has he done it? Well, he's done it in this mystery of Christ. In a helpless babe. Nothing weaker, nothing more helpless Nothing smaller, nothing more defenseless. There it is. And then everything that happened in him, the whole process of the incarnation. Do you spend your time thinking about it? Divesting himself of the insignia of his eternal glory and coming there through that. The mystery. And all his humiliation and all that he endured and suffered, we won't go through it this morning. There it is. The apostle has been referring to it. And then the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. And that's God's way of salvation. That's God's way of dealing with the human predicament, the human problem. That's God's way of reconciling men unto himself and of ultimately producing glorious order and glory out of the chaos of things as they are now. That's it. 
That's the thing he's talking about. If you read again what I've said, says the apostle in a few words, when you read, you may understand my knowledge, my insight into, my grasp of the mystery of Christ. Let me leave this with just a question. Is the mystery of Christ the most absorbing interest in your life? Is the mystery of Christ to you the most thrilling thing in the world this morning? Is this, I say, the center of your life, the thing that's uppermost in your heart, the core of your meditation ever? Oh, if you go through these scriptures, you'll find that he is there always in that central position. Read your hymn book, go right through it, and you'll find that they're always looking at him and contemplating him and standing back and with Paul expressing amazement at the mystery. The mystery of Christ. It's the last thing the Jews ever thought of. It's the last thing that Saul of Tarsus had ever thought of or ever even imagined, but it's the fact. It is the gospel. It is the thing that Christ gave to him there on the road to Damascus and said, go and preach it to the people, the Jews, and to the Gentiles to whom I shall send thee. There it is. I am the resurrection and the life. In me, remission of sins is to be preached unto all nations, as he said himself after his resurrection to the assembled apostles. I do trust that we are now not quite as surprised as we may have been why Paul has to use brackets and throw in his parentheses and forget style. As I think I said before, if I may use the apostolic terms, the whole tragedy of the church today is that uh, we no longer have parentheses. We are much too perfect. Our literary form is much too fine. These beautiful essays that are lifeless, they achieve nothing, how can they? We are much too controlled. It's because we haven't seen the mystery. There are no loose ends. Why? Well, because there's nothing to take us off for tangents as we just think of him or his name is mentioned and we are lost. Thank God for the brackets and the parentheses which remind us again of the mystery of Christ. Well, go on, we must go on to his particular mystery. The particular mystery, I say, is the thing that he'd started talking about in verse 3, but which he doesn't take up until verse 5. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now then, we must look at this. Here he is dealing with this particular matter of the relationship of the Jew and the Gentile in the Christian church. Now the apostle tells us elsewhere that he glories in the effect that he is particularly the apostle to the Gentiles. 
and he glories, he tells us in his office. He's very concerned about it at this point because, of course, he is writing to these Ephesians who had been Gentiles and pagans, and his whole objective, as I've said, is to enable them to realize the marvel and the wonder of it all. But, you know, my friends, you and I have got an additional reason for being careful about this particular statement. And let me say, quite frankly, that I would sooner in every way not have to deal with this. But as I understand the business of preaching, it is not only to exhort, and not only to comfort, but to instruct. It is only as our doctrine is fairly straight in our minds that we can truly live the Christian life and enjoy it as we are meant to do. And as I preach, I know, therefore, that there are those who use uh, certain Bibles and certain books. And I know that they, they read their notes which lay tremendous stress upon this particular statement. And out of it construct a whole outlook and a scheme of teaching. I am referring to what is commonly known by the name of dispensationalism. And I am obviously referring in passing to the notes which are found in the so-called Schofield Bible. I know there are many present who undoubtedly use it. And I know that there is always a danger when you find notes in a Bible to believe unconsciously that the notes are as inspired as the text. We tend to swallow it all, we tend to take it as authentic, and it can be presented in such a way that sometimes it seems most plausible and nothing can be said against it. But very well, therefore, we are driven much against our will just to glance at this from that particular standpoint. You are familiar with this dispensational teaching. It roughly says something like this. That all the promises which you find in the Old Testament were made to the Jews and apply only to the Jews. That they do not apply to the church. That the Christian church is something which has come in, this is their term, as a kind of parenthesis. That when the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, he came to offer the kingdom to the Jews. And it was only because they refused it that he brought in the idea of the church. If only the Jews had accepted the kingdom, they say they would never have been a Christian church at all. But the Jews having rejected the kingdom, the church has come in as a new dispensation, as a kind of parenthesis. It will come to an end, and then again you'll go back to the Jews, and the promises to the Jews as a particular nation will all come into being and into force, and Christ will again set up his kingdom. They draw a sharp line of division between the church and the kingdom. They say the Jews are still a separate and a special people, and that all these Old Testament prophecies only apply to them. Now you see the relevance of this. The people who believe that sort of thing are very busy at the present time in preaching sermons and delivering addresses about Egypt and about what's happening in Palestine and in the Near East. They say, here it is. This is the very scripture. So they're preaching that at the present time. Egypt in the scriptures. What's going to happen? And some of them even claim they can tell you exactly what's going to happen. They find it all, they say, in the scriptures. Now then, they make great use of this particular statement that we are examining now. And they do so for this reason. Listen to what the apostle says. 
how that by revelation I made known unto you the mystery, which in other ages was not known unto the sons of men. And there they stop. And you see, they argue like this. They say, surely, that is a perfectly clear statement to the effect that this is something that was not known under the old dispensation, something which was not known, indeed, they go on to say, until it was revealed to the Apostle Paul. That is their teaching, that this doctrine concerning the church was revealed only to the Apostle Paul, and here he says it was revealed to him and to nobody else. So he is the one alone to whom this revelation of this particular mystery was made. There are some indeed who are even foolish enough to say that there is nothing in the Old Testament about the fact that the Gentiles were going to be saved. Well, there's only one answer to give to that, and that is go and read the Old Testament. And you'll find it there in many, many places. The promise was made to Abram, as Paul reminded us in the third chapter of Galatians, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Thank God it's there in many other places. In Isaiah you get it constantly, the isles and the Gentiles and so on. It's there. And that is the simple answer. But I say there are others, and these are the most important, because this is the particular teaching of the Schofield Bible, for instance, who say that it was that the church as such was not known under the old dispensation. Now this is an exact quotation from that book. The church corporately is not in the vision of the Old Testament prophets. And then in brackets, to prove that contention, Ephesians 3, 1 to 6. Ephesians 3, 1 to 6, says that statement, indicates that the church corporately is not in the vision of the Old Testament prophet. If you're interested to know where you'll find that, you'll find it in the introduction to the prophetic books of the Old Testament in those particular notes. Well, now then, what are we to say to this? I perhaps might add, in order to make my statement complete before I come to my answer, that there is a system of ultra-dispensationalism, not the one which you find in those notes, but the one associated with the name of Dr. Bullinger, ultra-dispensationalism, which really goes as far as to say this, that it is only here that you really get the New Testament gospel which applies to us. That was what he taught. He said, the gospels have nothing to do with us at all. They were for the Jews only. Here, they say, is the message for this age, for Jews and Gentiles in the church. He even went as far as that. Well, we're not concerned about the particularities, but let us take this general question. What is the answer to this? Well, surely, the doctrine concerning the church was clearly taught by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Take the great scene at Caesarea Philippi, when he said to Peter, Upon this rock I will found and establish my church. Now, let's be fair. The Schofield notes have to admit that he did that. They don't make much use of it, but they, in honesty, have got to admit it. They say he didn't do it very clearly. All right, but the fact is that he did it. It isn't only revealed to Paul. It had been revealed at any rate before. Our Lord himself taught it. But indeed, going back, we find this. 
that it was what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. When the question came up saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter's reply was, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ye shall receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to as many as are afar off. That's the Gentiles. And of course he and John obviously recognized this principle when going down to Samaria as you read the account in Acts 8. They recognized that those Samaritans who were not Jews had also come in and had received the benefits of salvation and they laid their hands upon them and they received the Holy Ghost. And of course Peter, in the dramatic event that took place before he ever went to the house of Cornelius, was brought to see the same thing. You know he took a vision from heaven to make Peter see it. Peter, as a Jew, couldn't understand this. Though he was a saved man, though he passed through Pentecost, the idea that the Gentiles, impossible. So God sent the vision of this great cloth coming down from heaven with these beasts of different orders and kinds, and the command, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And Peter said, no, my Lord, how can I? Nothing common or unclean hath ever entered into my lips. And then God said to him that, which God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And he saw it once and forever, and he went, and he admitted the Gentiles into the church. He was attacked for it, and he defended himself, as you can read in chapters 11 and 15 of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Well, there it is, you see. Before Paul really had become the apostle that he became, it had already been preached in that way. But in fact, you get it in the Old Testament. There are clear passages there, such as Ezekiel 36 and elsewhere, which show this picture of the church. But go right back to the beginning. It's there, as Paul argues in Galatians 3, in Abraham, in the whole promise to Abraham. It is perfectly clear and definite. But, and this is the thing that's immediately important here, We learn as we examine all this the danger of having a theory and imposing it upon the scriptures. What the apostle actually says is this, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, not full stop but comma, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What does that mean? It means this. He isn't saying that it had never been revealed before. What he is saying is this. It was not revealed before as to the extent that it is now revealed. It was there in embryo. It's now in full blossom and development. It was there in shadow as a suggestion. It's now fully elaborated. That's what he's saying. It's as it is now revealed. It wasn't then revealed as it is now revealed. It was revealed, but not as it is now. And you see the importance of it. And what an extraordinary thing the human mind is, even when it's Christian and when it has received the Holy Spirit. If you read these dispensational writings, I think you will find that generally they put a full stop after that word, men. And don't go on to quote the rest of the statement. Namely, as it is now revealed. Am I saying they're dishonest? Not at all. I am just saying that the human mind is valuable. And mine is. 
And that therefore we have to be careful as we study the scripture, lest we elaborate a whole system upon what is nothing but a fallacy. Now then, what is this mystery that has now been made perfectly plain and clear, the full unfolding? Well, it is this. Not the fact simply that the Gentiles are to be saved, but that Gentile and Jew are to be together in the Christian church. Their peculiar relationship to one another. What is he saying? Well, he's saying this. Not that the Gentiles are now to be allowed to become Jewish proselytes. That is what the Jews believed, and indeed they practiced that, you remember. There had been many a Gentile who had come to see the truth of God in the Old Testament scriptures, and he said, I'd like to become one of you. So they took him, they instructed him, they circumcised him, and he became a Jewish proselyte. Yes, you see, he was allowed to come in, but only as a proselyte. He was still not a full Jew. He's allowed in, but as a proselyte. Now, that's the very thing that the apostle is contending in this particular section. What he's saying is this. The Jew has come in not as an addition, not as a proselyte. He has come into this new thing, the church, in exactly the same way as the Jew comes in. What he's saying is this, that the church is now the kingdom. That what the Jewish nation was in the Old Testament, the church is now. And that there is no longer that old distinction. In other words, he is saying that our Lord's prophecy recorded in Matthew 21, 43 has been fulfilled. This is it. Therefore I say unto you, said our Lord to the Jews, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And the Apostle Peter confirms it in his way by using about the church consisting of Jew and Gentile the very words that God used through Moses about the nation of Israel in Exodus 19. Ye are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation a peculiar people. The church is the kingdom. Now then let's watch how the Apostle does this. His point is that the old distinction between the Jew and the Gentile is abolished once and forever. He's already shown us that in the second chapter. The middle wall of partition is gone. Christ has demolished it. He's made one new man, so making peace. The old distinction has gone, I say, once and forever. But listen to the particular way in which he says it. This is the mystery. That the Gentiles should be... And then he's got three fellows. Unfortunately, this authorized hasn't got it well. Fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of, his same, of the promise. This is what Paul said. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise. In every single case, it's that word fellow that he uses in the same way. Well, now look at it. The Gentiles, he says, are to be fellow heirs with the Jews, which means this, that all the promises that God had made to the Jewish people under the Old Testament are now open to the Gentiles. 
fellow heirs. Somebody draws up a will, and in his will, I leave so-and-so to so-and-so. What you find in the will? Well, here's the answer. The Jew is an equal sharer with the Gentile, and the Gentile with the Jew. No difference. They're both fellow heirs. They've got the same place in the will. They're going to receive the same benefits. Now that, of course, refers to the new covenant that God had promised. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the one that I made when I brought you out of Israel. What is the new covenant? Oh, here it is. Your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. I shall be to you a God. You shall be to me a people. No longer only for the Jew, but for you, my friend, for me. We are in the will. We are heirs together with the Jews, the old nation, the old people, in this amazing promise of the benefits of the new covenant. Fellow heirs, we'll go into this more deeply next Sunday, God willing. But come, let me come to the second term. Fellow members of the body. Why do you think he added that? Surely, you argue, fellow heirs tells us everything. You can't go beyond saying fellow heirs. Oh, yes, you can. And I'll tell you why. There is nothing to prevent a man when he writes his will to do something like this. He's got an only son. And he's got a family servant who's been with him for 40 years and whom he has come to regard almost as a son. So when he makes his will, he says that all my property is to be divided between my son and my faithful servant, so-and-so. A servant can be made a fellow heir with a son, but he's still a servant. That doesn't make him a member of the family. That doesn't mean he's got the same blood in him. That doesn't mean that he's changed the relationship. He can be a beneficiary equally with the son, but he's still a servant. He's not one. So the apostle takes no risks. He adds to fellow heirs, fellow members of the body. Now then, you see, this is the thing that demolishes that attempt to perpetuate a distinction between the Jew and the Gentile any longer. No, no, says Paul. It isn't that the Gentiles are simply added on somehow loosely. They are compacted together as joints in the same body. And no one joint is more in the body than any other joint. We are jointed together, impacted as joints together in this one body. There's no distinction any longer. There's no superiority and inferiority. The system of dispensationalism says there is. That there is a heavenly people and an earthly people. And that the Jews are going to come back and have a very special place again in some future time. It seems to me to be a blank denial of this. Where we are told that all that is finished forever. And here there is one body. And they're equally joints and impacted together in the one body. And then he goes even a step further and puts it like this, that we are fellow partakers together of the promise. What does he mean by this? Well, it seems to me that we are driven by other scriptures to say that he means two things by this. I read to you in Galatians 3.14 this statement that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, 
that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is called the promise of the Father. This thing that runs as a golden thread through the Old Testament, this wonderful promise. The thing that happened on the day of Pentecost, and Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, the promise of the Father, the shedding forth of the Spirit, and all the results of that amazing thing. Here, says Paul, your fellow partakers of the promise. You've received the fullness of the Spirit exactly as the Jew has done. But it also, I think, means this in addition. Another great promise, of course, was the promise of the resurrection and the promise of the glorious kingdom of the Son of God. Listen to Paul again putting this very clearly in Acts 26, verses 6 to 8, when he's making his defense before King Agrippa. And now, he says, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come, for which hope, say King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Now you see what the promise is. It is this promise that a Messiah would come who would even conquer death and the grave and bring life and immortality to light. It is the promise of resurrection, the final resurrection, and the coming of the glorious kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That was something that the Jew prized above everything else. He had to suffer a lot in his life in this world, but he looked beyond it all, as we are told in Hebrews 11. He looked to that great promise, this resurrection, the life of glory. He had it. Nobody else had it. The Gentile was without hope, without God in the world, as Paul has already said. But now, he says, your heirs, fellow partakers of the promise. And so to you and to me it means this that we this morning can look forward to the resurrection of the body. We can look forward to a glorified body. We can look forward to dwelling on a new earth under a new heavens, wherein dwelleth righteousness, fellow partakers of the promise. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Very well, my friends, there it is. You see the two mysteries which the apostle tells us he has been given to preach. The mystery of Christ, the whole thing, the particular mystery. That this purpose of God is now in the church. And that the church is the final form until all things are wound up. And Jew and Gentile in Christ, and only in Christ together, shall share the benefits of this everlasting and eternal glory.
and shall wander to all eternity. At the grace of God that ever made it possible, that ever brought us in, and that made us and the Jews together fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of such a blessed hope. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.